This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Later today, Ella Taylor will have news you can use, some recommendations about virus time television. Also, your Minnesota moment. Today, the secret history of the Koch brothers, how the key to their empire and their fortune is a refinery south of St. Paul. But first, we're still thinking about Tara Reid's allegation that in 1993, Joe Biden backed her up against the wall, kissed her neck and hair, put his hand under her clothes, and penetrated her with his fingers. For comment, we turn to Katha Pollitt, poet, essayist, and award-winning columnist for The Nation. She also writes for The New Yorker and The Atlantic Online. Katha, welcome back. Hi, John. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, Tara Reid's most committed defenders, like Kate Mann at The Nation, say that even if she were proven to be telling the truth, if it comes down to a choice in November between Biden and Trump, she will vote for Biden. But, she and others say, it's not too late to replace Biden as the candidate if an independent investigation supported Tara Reid's charge. Then, Kate Mann writes, Biden might be pressured to step aside to make way for a less compromised and therefore more promising candidate, close quote. So there's really two related questions we have to talk about. First, do you think Tara Reid is telling the truth about Biden? And second, if she is telling the truth, should we vote for Biden anyway? Uh, let's start with the allegation and the evidence about what happened in that hallway. Tara Reid says that she was asked to bring a gym bag to Biden, who was traveling in the corridors of the Capitol, and that when she found him, he put her up against a wall and penetrated her with his fingers and said, asked her if she wanted to go somewhere, and then when she indicated that she wasn't pleased with his attentions, uh, he said, you're fine, you're fine, you're nothing to me and walked away. To believe this story, you have to believe that he did these things in the spur of the moment in a public hallway. She can't quite identify it, but it is a public space. Her lawyer said it was, a quote, a semi-private area like an alcove, but PBS NewsHour sent reporters to go over all the possible places where this could have been and established there is no semi-private area like an alcove there. And interestingly enough, Reed told Megyn Kelly that before she caught up with Biden, he was talking to another person. So it wasn't a private area and it was the middle of a work day. So to believe Reed, you have to believe that Biden would do that. And I just think that, that is, that's asking a lot. She says she filed a sexual harassment complaint after the incident. There's been a lot of back and forth about that. What do we know about it? Well, yeah. So she said she, first she said she filed a sexual harassment complaint at a Senate office. Then she said, well, I didn't use the, it doesn't say sexual harassment. It describes what happened, but it doesn't describe this assault. It describes other complaints she had. You know, she didn't like a lot of women. Um, she didn't like his touchy-feeliness. And she, she said she had been asked, not by him, but by a staffer, to serve drinks at a fundraiser. And there are problems with that I'll get to in a minute. Um, 
and that he wanted her to do it because he liked he quote liked her legs and when she refused that was when her job responsibilities were taken away from her she was put in a windowless room and eventually she was told she had a month to get another job and she was basically fired that would be what maybe would be on this complaint she says she filed but sometimes she says well it was just an intake form so it she's very unclear about what this form was or wasn't um and then it became a whole thing of like well where is that form and Biden asked the National Archives and the Senate Secretary's Office to release what, it, release what they had. They said um, they, that would violate confidentiality. And then Reid called on Biden to open his more than 1,800 uh, boxes of paper at the University of Delaware. And those are so they could look through it and find it. Somebody could do this. And this is not digitized, by the way. So people who say, oh, it would just take five minutes, you just put in her name. No, it wouldn't be like that. And these papers are closed until two years after he leaves public life. So he declined to do that, saying the document would not be there and a search would set off a fishing fishing expedition. But the point is, even if the complaint were found, it would tell us nothing about this alleged assault because she said she didn't include it in whatever paperwork she filed or didn't file. So I think that's a wild goose chase. We know a lot of other things about Tara Reid. What, what do you make of the crazy stuff she's written about Putin being, quote, intoxicating to American women, close quote? Yeah, I was always a little skeptical, but I was kind of on the fence um, because most women who claim to have been sexually violated in some way are telling the truth. Um, and so you don't want to quickly dismiss a claim I wouldn't say I wanted to believe her, but I was willing to believe her. But there are one thing that happens a lot in her story is she gives too many reasons for things. I'm getting to Putin in a moment. She gives too many reasons why something happened. You know, you should only give one reason and you should just stick to that reason. That's my advice for all you listeners out there. One reason. So she wrote these pieces, uh, which she published uh, about Putin. And she published them on medium.com, which is a a website where anyone can post anything. And it was just worshipful. This is my favorite quote. President Putin's obvious reverence for women, children, and animals, and his ability with sports, is intoxicating to American women. Um, So then she deleted these posts. These were uh, toward the end of 2018. Um, She deleted them, and now she says that she lost faith in Putin. She deleted them because she lost faith in Putin when she learned of Russia's decriminalization of domestic violence. But this cannot be true because she had retweeted and liked the year before a tweet from Chelsea Handler about the new Russian law decriminalizing much domestic violence. And then she said, okay, these pieces were really part of a novel, but there's nothing novelistic about them. They're straightforward opinion pieces. Um, and she told Megyn Kelly that all this quasi-erotic gushing over Putin was supposed to be humorous. Well, okay. So anyway, those pieces are one reason why there was this uh, claim out there in Twitter land that she was a Russian spy. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> and, 
But, you know, she's such a terrible writer and she published these invisible, self-published these invisible pieces. And it just doesn't seem to me like the Russians would bother with someone like that. Well, there are better reasons to believe Tara Reid. She does have people who corroborate her story or at least sort of corroborate it. Right, right. And this was why I was willing to believe. But then when you looked into these corroborators, they're, they're questionable, too. If you examine their, the accounts closely, there are only two that claim to know about the assault. Her mother, who is now deceased, you know, there was this whole thing where she said her mother called in and on. She says she told her mother right away. And her mother said, you should go to the police. And Tara Reid said her mother called in anonymously to Larry King. And a video of that call came to light. But her mother said uh, only that her daughter had been, had been working for a, quote, prominent senator, unquote, and had problems that she couldn't get help for. So that doesn't count. Then her brother, who she also says she told quickly after this supposed assault, also said nothing about the, the assault when he was interviewed by the Washington Post. And then he's having spoken to the left-wing journalist Nathan Robinson, who is the editor of Current Affairs, the brother texted the Post a few days later and said, oh, now I remember Biden putting, quote, his hands under her clothes. Um, and then there were some other people who she told, who say she told us about sexual harassment, but there was no mention of assault. Um, even from her ex-husband, who filed an affidavit in 1996, in which he, he says, in, as part of their divorce, uh, said Reed told him she had been sexually harassed when she worked in his office, but there was no mention of assault. And the sexual harassment, I might say by way of parenthesis, doesn't necessarily come from Biden, because for the whole first part of this, she was complaining about the staff. It was the staff who wanted her to serve those drinks and the staff who uh, told her at one point that she was dressing too sexily and should dress in a less provocative way. She took great offense at that. Um, but anyway, there are two friends who come closest to corroborating the assault. One is an, a woman who prefers to remain anonymous and she knew Reed when they both worked on the Hill together way back in 1993. And last year she corroborated Reed's claim that Biden had touched her neck and shoulders. Remember when Lucy Flores and a whole bunch of women came out and said, you know, we don't like that Biden smells our hair and touches our neck and shoulders and all like that. And Reed was one of those women. Reed was interviewed by her local paper um, at that time. And the friend corroborated in the, in the paper, the union uh, paper is called, corroborated Reed's claim that Biden had done this, had touched this, but said the friend, there was nothing sexual about it. And that is what Reed also said at the time. Then when Reed claimed assault this March, the friend corroborated that too and asked why, well, why did you keep, why did you uh, not say this? Why did you say all this, how it wasn't sexual last year? And she says, well, it just wasn't my place to come out with more than Reed had said. So in other words, this woman lied for her friend. I mean, to put it bluntly, that's what she did. So the, so the second corroborator is Linda LaCasse, and this was Reed's neighbor in the mid-90s. And she told Business Insider that Reed told her about the assault in 1995 or 96, but she admits she'd forgotten about it until Reed reminded her just a few months ago. Here's the interesting thing. 
she was interviewed by Amy Goodman on Democracy Now. And then she seemed to say she always remembered it. It wasn't like with Business Insider where she said, oh, I forgot, um, I'd forgotten about it. But then she said something really strange. Amy asked her about her own support for Biden. And she said this, it's a difficult thing. I've always supported him. And I just have to keep supporting him now. And it's a little bit harder now after this allegation. Well, what does that mean after this allegation? She, always, she has said she always knew about this. So that sounds as if the allegation was new information to her and not something she always remembered um, or about which she just needed to have her memory jogged by Tara. Yeah, that was very striking to me about Biden. She said, quote, I've, to Amy Goodman, I've always supported him, but it's a little bit harder now after this allegation, which, as you say, makes it sound like she just found out when the, the rest of us did, even though she has said she heard about it 25 years ago. So she's always known about it. So this is an inconsistency. It is an inconsistency. So, um, you know, if you want to take those two women as corroboration, you have to overlook some things. But they are really the only evidence that this happened. Although Kate Mann, um, who you mentioned earlier, Kate Mann thinks that uh, making an allegation is a form of evidence. That seems uh, wrong to me. I mean, anyone can say anything about anyone. The evidence is what you bring to your claim. The evidence is not the claim. There is new information this past week, big news from the PBS NewsHour. Tell us about that. They posted an article that was based on, on their website, that's based on interviews with 74 Biden staffers. They all spoke highly of their boss and his respectful and enlightened behavior toward women. And he promoted a lot of women in the office. But more interesting that one staffer who had worked with Reed said her office problems had to do with her poor performance at the task they shared, which was answering constituent email, and how hard is that? And another one said this drinks request would never have happened because Biden, in a move for, that seems quite unusual for that time, did not want women to do such menial tasks. And when he had um, events, men did those things. So... Interestingly, however, more than 50 people said as staffers they had never attended fundraisers, and some mentioned an office policy that barred most staffers from campaign work. So you kind of wonder, well, okay, what happens to one of her main complaints about the office was this thing that all these people say not only didn't happen, would have violated policies to have it happen. Another staffer said, who was there when uh, Reed was there, says it never would have happened. We all knew there was a very hard line there. And then there's the 74 Biden staffers, let's emphasize, of whom 62 were women, were asked by the PBS NewsHour whether they had experienced sexual harassment, sexual assault, or sexual misconduct by Biden, or whether they'd ever heard any rumors or allegations about Biden engaging in sexual harassment, assault, or misconduct. Well, how did that turn out? They all said, no, nothing of the kind. You know, you, you sort of know who the bad guys are on the Hill, and he was a good guy. 
uh, one of them said, you know, I traveled with him and it, it, I always felt completely comfortable. So to me, this is the biggest one. 74 former Biden staffers, of whom 62 were women, all said they never experienced sexual harassment, assault, or misconduct by Biden. All said they never even heard any rumors or allegations of Biden engaging in sexual harassment, assault, or misconduct until Tara Reid. So you conclude... You know, I went from on the fence to don't believe, and I spent a lot of time reading everything I could and watching her on um, her various appearances on pro-Bernie shows like the Katie Helper Show um, and Democracy Now!, where she was only asked the most softball of questions, I must say. And I just think that people ran with the story before it had enough support. Now, what do you say about the people who say feminists like you and and me are being hypocritical when we say believe the women when they're people like Christine Blasey Ford accusing Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault? We believe them. We're not believing Tara Reid when she complains about Joe Biden. Are we being hypocritical right now? No, we are not being hypocritical because... Hashtag believe women, which I think was a mistake. I think it should have been hashtag listen to women or hashtag hear women out. It doesn't mean that every single woman, whatever she says, you have to believe it. That would be insane because rare as it is, there are women who do, who do lie. I mean, the Scottsboro Boys, that was a famous case of that. Tawana Brawley is another one. That UVA the woman who was at the center of that UVA frat rape story, um, the Duke lacrosse case. And the thing about these cases is that they linger in the popular imagination for years. Tawana Brawley was 33 years ago, and she's still in the popular imagination. So it's very important not to just say, oh, it's a woman, I believe her. You have to look at, you have to look at the evidence. You have to look at what's actually going on. And most of the time, I would say almost all the time, there will be important evidence that suggests she's telling the truth. Um, in this case, it just seems like everything that comes out, John, everything that comes out makes the story weaker, not stronger. Now about uh, Christine Blasey Ford, I think, you know, you can say that, yeah, sure, you might be, have been eager to believe Ford because she was attacked. It was against a Republican. I mean, a horrible Brett Kavanaugh. And you might be reluctant to believe Reed because it's against a Democrat who, unlike, say, Ted Kennedy, doesn't have that kind of a reputation. But there's also the fact that Ford did not change her story. She testified under oath. She took a polygraph and she had four sworn affidavits from people she told about the incident, plus her therapist notes. And Reed doesn't have any of that. So the, the final question is, if she were telling the truth, should we vote for Biden anyway? Well, I think we have to, um, because this is uh, an election that is going to decide the fate of the United States for the foreseeable future, if not the whole world. And the election of Trump, the re-election of Trump will be a just world-class disaster. And it'll be a disaster that will last 
more than four years because he's going to put, he's going to completely reform the courts by then. I mean, they're putting in ju- the most reactionary judges you can imagine. Um, probably even as, even as we're speaking, they're, they're confirming more of them. And what will that do for women? You know, the idea that you have to have some perfect guy to carry your banner, this is not how politics works at all. And people understand that. I mean, look at Governor Ralph Northam. Black Virginians stuck with him despite that blackface scandals. Are they hypocrites? No, you have to support the politician who is going to promote your interests, whatever his faults are. And that, you know, for better or worse, that's Joe Biden. Um, he is not going to step aside because of this. And, and I don't think he should. Your new column at The Nation makes the striking argument in this context that we should, quote, take a leaf from the evangelicals, close quote. Yeah, you know, everybody is down on them. Uh, well, every except themselves is down on them for being <laughs> enormous hypocrites because they vote for Donald Trump and say things like, well, he's God's instrument, imperfect man, just like King David, or he's a baby Christian. That was one of my favorites. But, you know, they don't care that 25 women have accused him of various kinds of misconduct or that he paid hush money to a porn star and they don't care about his taxes um, or, you know, all the, all his bankruptcies and his dis- various forms of dishonesty. They don't care about any of that. What they care about is what he will do for them. And that is install Supreme Court justices who will overturn Roe v. Wade. And that's just for starters. So what they're really saying when people say, you know, you shouldn't vote for Biden is let's have Donald Trump be president because Tara Reid has made an accusation, even though this accusation is extremely, I believe, unlikely to be true. Katha Pollitt, she wrote about Tara Reid for The Nation. You can read her piece right now at thenation.com. Katha, thanks for this one. Great to have you on the show. Thanks so much for having me, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk about TV in the age of the virus. This is News You Can Use, a regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. We can't go to the movie theaters, but we can watch movies at home. And for some advice, we turn to Ella Taylor. She's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, NPR.org, and lots of other places. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Hi, John. Thank you. It's very great to be back. Well, what do you have for us today? Well, primarily what I have for you is an absolutely terrific movie that I just saw, which should have been opening in theaters, but instead will become available on... um, Hulu, VOD, and I'm told, participating drive-in movie theaters. (laughs) And it's going to be a very strange uh, movie to see in drive-in theaters, which are known for necking and kissing, um, (laughs) because this is a very weird movie. It's It's called Shirley. It is about the writer Shirley Jackson, who famously wrote a short story called The Lottery um, about a rich, an annual ritual killing in a village in New England. 
It was an absolute sensation. It was published in the New Yorker, uh, I think in 1948, if I'm not mistaken, and uh, became an overnight sensation. And she went on to write a whole bunch of novels, most famous of which uh, have also been made into streaming movies and um, series. One is The Haunting of Hill House, which is very famous, and the other is We Have Always Lived in the Castle, um, both of which can be seen streaming. But this is about Shirley Jackson, and it is about the furthest thing from a biopic that you could imagine. Uh, not least, it stars the wonderful Elizabeth Moss, uh, whom we know from The Handmaid's Tale and Top of the Lake and uh, Mad Men and so on. Extraordinarily versatile actress who can transform herself into absolutely anybody from what I've seen. And she's really terrific as Shirley Jackson, um, a woman who was had every kind of neurosis that you can think of. She ate too much, she drank too much, she took too many pills, um, she was paranoid, and above all else, she was a recluse. Not that she lived alone, but she lived with her husband in Bennington, uh, the literary critic Stanley Hyman, um, who is beautifully played by Michael Stuhlbarg, who uh, gave that extraordinary dad speech in Call Me By Your Name, uh, amongst many other roles, really terrific. They had this extraordinarily um, codependent, pathological relationship. And the movie, uh, far from being a biopic, tries to get us inside Shirley Jackson's tormented, tormenting head. And it does this by building a number of worlds and eliding the boundaries between them. So that uh, there's the boundary between the inside of their house, which is dark and cluttered and totally disorganized, but where they also apparently in real life gave a, a bunch of wild parties in Bennington, Vermont to the students and faculty of, uh, of the college. And then there is the outside, uh, which is in part the academic world where Shirley had to be really dragged into. She really couldn't bear to leave her house. And there is a young couple who come to stay with them. They actually come because the, um, the husband, who's played by Logan Lerman, who's famous for the Percy Jackson movies, um, a very bland uh, presence, which is meant to be, and his young wife, Rose, who's played by Odessa Young. And they quickly move into the house uh, and it becomes a kind of scenario of uh, the spiders pulling two flies into their web. So it's a black comedy of sorts um, that elides the boundaries between the inside and the outside of, of Shirley's head. I've seen only the trailer for Shirley. It, it's scary. It ends, what happens to all lost girls? They go mad. How scary is the movie? 
I, I would say that the movie is creepy more than more than scary. I okay. mean, it, it's a little bit, it's psychologically scary in terms of the radical instability of just about everybody in its orbit. <laughs> this, the husband is a Svengali type who both enables Shirley and uh, oppresses her terribly. I mean, they all have incredibly complicated feelings towards each other. Um, theirs was an extraordinarily sick relationship in, and very close too in many ways and uh, apparently in life uh, as in the movie he's continually stuffed Shirley with food and pills and booze mm. <laughs> so he had very complicated feelings in the end he was a lot less famous than she was although he was uh, quite well known himself and in particular, young Rose um, becomes very enmeshed with the family. She reads the lottery on the train to their house and uh, it completely sexualizes her hmm. uh, in ways that I don't want to reveal because it would spoil. Well, um, let's talk for a minute about Elizabeth Moss. Uh, of course, we really got to love her uh, in Mad Men where she played the... Peggy Olson, the unhappy and frustrated secretary at the advertising firm. Mad Men's finale was five years ago, and Elizabeth Moss turns out really to be the only one of the Mad Men cast to turn out to have a terrific uh, career with, as you said, so many different roles. You know, John Hamm as Don Draper has done a lot since Mad Men, none of it particularly memorable, but, but Elizabeth Moss, has been a, done a lot of award-winning work on stage and live theater in New York and in London. Of course, she was fantastic in Handmaid's Tale, but for me, her, her best role, at least until Shirley, was in the less well-known TV series directed by Jane Campion about a detective in New Zealand. It was released in 2013 on Sundance Channel, a miniseries called top of the lake. I thought that was completely amazing to see Elizabeth Moss in that role. And I think that there, as here, she really thrives on complexity and, and range. That's her, her big gift to us, I think. Um, Shirley Jackson was hugely overweight. Uh, in fact, she died at age 48 uh, of a heart attack that was connected. And Elizabeth Moss enters into this. You know, she was a plain woman. She had, uh, she wore these very thick spectacles. And Moss, she's not unrecognizable because she has such a, you know, distinctive face. But she absolutely revels. Um, she coats Shirley Jackson in, malevol in a malevolence. <laughs> Uh, but also an extraordinary vulnerability. And she can switch between the two on a dime in, in ways that I think must be very difficult for actors, but that she seems to pull off more or less effortlessly. So when she looks at Rose, uh, and there's a very powerful uh, lesbian subtext um, to this, which the director Josephine Decker has, and the writer Sarah Gubbin have imposed on the film without at all, I don't know whether there was any truth to this in real life or whether there was even a young couple or a rose, um, but it, because the film is so fluid and impressionistic, it's not troublesome at all. Um, and when she looks at Rose, there's this combination of love, guilt, and sheer malevolence, hmm. uh, like a spider that's about to entra entrap his fly. 
And at the end, they are both in some way liberated. So it's a very feminist story. But it's very good. What Elizabeth Moss does there is to enter into uh, that part of, of Shirley Jackson that that delves into the dark side of civilization, that unpacks it that we saw in the lottery. So that's the new film, Shirley, starring Elizabeth Moss as the novelist Shirley Jackson. It's going to be on video on demand on Hulu starting, I think it's June 5th. Uh, Between now and June 5th, do you have anything else to recommend? Well, I've been watching... Since I'm locked down, I've, been, I've turned to television a lot. There's obviously no movies coming out in theatres, so there's, there's nothing for me to review except things that stream. But I have become both um, comforted and freaked out watching a whole lot of police procedurals. Uh-huh. Most prominent of which is Bosch, which I think we've both seen. And yes. I think I watched all six series in a matter of about four days. <laughs> Wow. Four evenings, actually, because I'm working during the day. The, I don't know whether you agree with this. The, the plotting is it's based on a, um, a bunch of uh, Michael Connolly novels, um, was developed for Amazon by Eric Overmeyer. The plotting is fairly boilerplate. So there's this LAPD um, detective played by Titus Welliver. What a name. <laughs> uh, and he is a very strange presence because he's, got, he's a very strange physical presence. He seems to sort of list to one side wherever he is. He's kind of um, <laughs> moving to one side. And of course, he's be, like all contemporary detectives, he's got either a troubled or a non-existent personal life except for his love for his daughter. Um, and the plots are really, I've never read Michael Connolly. Um, the plots are fairly boilerplate, but his character is really interesting. And um, I really loved, there's a running theme behind all the plots, which is the unsolved murder of his mother, uh, a single mother who was also a sex worker to keep the family solvent. And that runs behind most of the series until he discovers who the the murderer is. One of the things that I love about procedurals is, first of all, because it fascinates me to see how people go about their work, but also because that reveals, A, so much about their characters and more broadly about the particular themes, um, underlying social themes. In this case, a wonderful portrait of LA. There's not a palm tree in sight. <laughs> they go to all these, uh, and then they never go to the beach, except they do go to uh, Palisades Park, which is right near where I live. <clears throat> this is a very grungy and... Um, you know, strip mall LA, they go to Musso and Franks and they go to, um, you know, strange places that you've never heard of. And it it really is, the cinematography is totally to die for. Um, Each episode is, uh, or bunch of episodes is directed by different directors and they've got a bunch of very good directors. But because it, it sets up a little work family in the workplace, and I find that strangely comforting uh, during this time, uh, and also because they get the guy or the woman, uh, usually by the end of every series, so something good happens. <laughs> um, yeah, in- for at, our, at, my house, at my house, we love it 
first of all, for the locations in L.A., they've really found it, as you say, a different L.A. of the kind of the industrial areas, the poorer neighborhoods, the apartment houses, a lot of East Hollywood in there, I think, and the sort of eastern San Fernando Valley that maybe aren't so well known to people who live in Beverly Hills or Pacific Palisades. And, of course, the character of the hard-boiled LAPD detective is a TV, you know, staple going all the way back to, what, the 50s and Dragnet with Jack Webb. But this is a very different uh, take on the hard-boiled LAPD detective because, as you say, he's got a little depth to his character. He's got this daughter who he worries about. Fortunately, she's never, they never really exploit her as the damsel in distress, although you always kind of worry like keep away from the daughter, please. Um, and also, it's impressive to me that the cast is so incredibly multicultural. This is not a show about white people. I mean, it does have a white man as the troubled hero, but so many of the rest are are not just African-American and Latino, but but Caribbean and Central American. And yeah. Um, his partner is, is black and the chief of police who has mayoral ambitions, uh, who's played very well by Lance Reddick, um, is, uh, is also black and there's a Latino um, incumbent mayor and so on. So There's a couple of Haitians too. There's a Haitian good guy. There's a Haitian bad guy. Yeah, it is in, in that sense very, uh, very gripping and the characters are very well drawn. Um, there's something about the intricacies of work, particularly police work, obviously, because it's dangerous and sensational and also boring some of the time. There's a couple of sidekick detectives there who are there for, uh, for, for, for laughs, um, who they call crate and barrel <laughs> yes. uh, for reasons that will become evident. I'm sure some, some of our listeners have already seen this show, but I, it's highly recommended. Uh, and there is a seventh season coming up. It's just been announced. That will be the final season. And you can see that um, on Amazon. So we've been talking about the new film, Shirley, starring Elizabeth Moss as the novelist Shirley Jackson. It will be available as video on demand on Hulu starting June 5th. And we've been talking about the six seasons of the TV series Bosch starring Titus Welliver as the LAPD detective who's the main character in the best-selling series of novels by Michael Conley. Uh, next year, the seventh season will be the last. It's on Amazon Prime. Virus Time TV, news you can use from Trump Watch on KPFK 90.7 FM. Ella Taylor, thanks for talking with us today. A pleasure. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time for your Minnesota moment. That's news from my hometown of St. Paul that you won't get from Sean Hannity. Today, the secret of the Koch brothers' fortune. For that, we turn to Christopher Hawthorne, author of the book, Cokeland. 
You say the key to the Koch's rise to power, if there is a single one, was Charles buying control of the Pine Bend Refinery south of St. Paul in 1969. I don't think anybody else in 1969 thought that Pine Bend would be the key to becoming a billionaire. Why did Charles want to own it? The, the importance of the Pine Bend Refinery cannot be overstated. Yes, Charles Koch is one of his first moves as CEO to purchase it in 1969. And I, I think, you know, the guy has really great business sense, and, and he knows an opportunity when he sees it. But I think critically what sets Koch apart is that they think on this horizon of years instead of quarterly earnings. So he saw this asset and he could see the profits that would it would deliver over the next two, five, ten years, and that's why he bought it. But I think the performance of Pine Bend even outstripped anything Charles Koch could have envisioned at the time. And it really tells an important story, not just about America's energy system, but about our, our political economy, if you will. And, and here's the headline about why this one oil refinery, I, it was described to me as the cash cow the crown jewel. It, it has delivered billions in profits over decades. And why was that? The reasons are really fascinating. The Pine Bend Refinery, which is kind of obscurely hidden up there in, in suburban St. Paul, it refines oil from the tar sands area of Canada. This is high sulfur, quote-unquote, dirty crude oil that not many refineries can process because of its chemical composition. So because not many people can process it, there are just big supplies of this oil piling up up there at the border in Canada. Not many people can buy it. So Coke, as one of the few purchasers, gets this oil really cheap. It refines it, and then it turns around and sells gasoline from that oil into these markets in the upper Midwest, you know, Chicago, Minneapolis, areas like that where gasoline prices are extremely high because there aren't that many refineries up there in that region. So Coke is buying extremely cheap, and it's selling really high. But the big question is, why is that sort of bottleneck or that dysfunction in the energy economy allowed to continue? We haven't built a new oil refinery in this country since 1977. It's a really uncompetitive sector of our economy. Everybody relies on gasoline to get to work, so it's essentially an energy monopoly. But we haven't built a new oil refinery, strangely enough, in large part because of the Clean Air Act regulations that have created this huge regulatory hurdle to get into the business and that the existing oil refineries have truly exploited and manipulated the clean air laws to keep out any new competitors. So you see how Coke sits on top of these assets that are tremendously profitable and sort of shielded from competition. So Pine Bend had great economic advantages. It also had one economic obstacle to tremendous profits. The Oil, Chemical, and Atomic Workers Union, the OCAW, had organized the Pine Bend Refinery Workers. That was a, a good union. It was a time when unions were strong. Minnesota was a union state. What happened to the OCAW in the contract negotiations of 1973? So this is one of the most important stories in the book, I think. You know, this is right when Charles Koch buys the refinery. He has big plans and big visions, but as you stated, 
there's a very strong, almost militant labor union standing in his way, in the, in the sense that, you know, you go back to the 1970s, labor unions had a lot of power in this country. They didn't just bargain for higher wages and higher retirement benefits, but they bargained for what we would call workplace rules, which were safety rules, so that a certain employee at the refinery would only work on one machine, and that employee would get to know that machine really well, and if it broke, another employee would come fix it. Now, that, that introduces inefficiencies into the business, and it's frustrating for owners because you've got these kind of shackles on what you can do. Charles Koch vehemently opposed these kinds of limitations on management control of facilities. He has opposed labor unions from the beginning, and he hired a guy named Bernard Paulson to come into the refinery. And I wouldn't even say take a hard line on contract negotiations. He told the union, Bernard Paulson told me, that it was basically take it or leave it. Charles Koch has got a new way of doing things. You're either on board or you're not. And what resulted was a nine-month-long strike bitter, bitter dispute. Coke was bringing in scab workers. It was bringing in workers via helicopter. They lived in bunker-like conditions. There was industrial sabotage. But Charles Coke never wavered in this fight. And in essence, Charles Coke broke the OCAW. After nine months, they came back to the table. They signed a contract. And I say they were essentially tamed from that point forward. Well, today, Pine Bend still going strong. It's run by something called Flint Hills Resources, which is, I guess, a subsidiary of Coke Industries. But if you look up the Flint Hills website, it says their purpose is safeguarding the environment. It's all about ducks and forests. It's all about the Pine Bend Bluffs natural area, known for its, I quote, its stunning views of the upper Mississippi River Basin and its critical role in providing wildlife habitat. And Flint Hills Resources sponsors the Flint Hills Family Festival in St. Paul, which they describe as an annual multi-day event featuring performances, free activities, art making, and more. Families, I'm quoting, are swept away on adventures that spark imagination and inspire exploration, close quote. That doesn't seem to be the way that Charles Koch got control of the refinery in Pine Bend. You know, there's always more to the story. Let's fast forward to the year 1996, which actually plays a big role in why this facility is called Flint Hills Resources instead of Coke Refining. You know, at that time, there was a huge pollution problem at this refinery. Yeah. The machinery was producing toxic ammonia levels that were way outside of the permit levels. And Coke managers, instead of shutting down the refinery to fix the problem, they chose to flush this ammonia-laden water out into the nearby wetlands and illegally pollute the wetlands. And, you know, the book tells the story of this one woman at the refinery who tried to get them to stop. She was an environmental engineer who tried to stand up to her bosses and get them to stop. And she was really marginalized and steamrolled. And I think that the reason for that is it's this corporate culture of everybody moving in lockstep. You know, the old labor unions created a counterbalance. But once that was wiped away, the, the sort of voices who got up and, and tried to speak against the authority, they're, they're not listened to as much. 
And anyway, you know, the federal authorities and the state authorities discovered this criminal wrongdoing at Pine Bend, and there was a huge record-breaking fine that was imposed on Koch for that. And it was after that very high-profile criminal action that they changed the name to Flint Hills Resources and, and kind of moved past the bad baggage that was locally attached to that word, you know, Coke refining. This has been your Minnesota Moment, a special feature of this program. Today we featured Christopher Hawthorne, author of the book Cokeland. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, and our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of the show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.